actually. Can we? I, I don't think we're allowed to talk about how we're drinking wine on the show, are we? Can on the podcast, which this is for. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, here we go. Hey, it's Kat. Have you subscribed to our show yet? You know you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or just about anywhere else you can get your podcasts. But in addition to that, we would love it if you could do us one more favor. Please, please, please rate us and share our show. The rating helps us show up easier when people search for us, but you actually sharing it draws more listeners than anything else that you could possibly do. So please, if you like what you're hearing right now, please rate us and leave us a review on iTunes and then share the link with one friend or two friends. I appreciate it. Thanks. From 103.7 WPBMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And today we're looking at part two of John's trip to Miami, the culinary scene, and what it has to say about immigration and gentrification. But first, here's Pink Louds.
and blocks of vibrant pinks, blues, yellows, and greens flash by the car windows like a turning kaleidoscope. In both expanse and density, it's breathtaking. The Wynwood neighborhood in Miami is like some grand experiment in the intentional development of an arts district. Endless stretches of murals and graffiti pop out like landmarks to signal where you are on Northwest 23rd, Northwest 24th Street, and on the main road of Northwest 36th Street, as well as every alley and avenue in between. They're all tall, long, intricate works, everything from freehand to wheat pastes. Most of it maintains a Latino, and in some cases Catholic influence, but there's also a distinctive litheness to much of the work. Muralists such as Trek Six leave buildings posing as giant boom boxes, sometimes taking up entire cinder block structures. The intoxicatingly dreaming works of Kazia, Yoke, and Shiro's terrifying and delightful creatures with dozens of eyes floating in blood-red rivers, chore boogies, mosaic fresco mashups, and Aowen's tribal scriptings scrawled across endless blocks. The neighborhood art is alive and seems to move and shake around you on this average Wednesday night. Wynwood was first established by two major landowners in the early 1900s, one of whom was Josiah Shia, a city councilman who was actually the guy responsible for developing the numerical naming system used for the roads in Miami. But by the end of World War II, the downtown city of Miami was starting to pick up steam, and Wynwood sucked up like a dry vein, while the masses flocked to the high-rise towers and promising city lights to the south. As rent prices fell, a mass of Puerto Rican immigrants found their way to the neighborhood, and by the 1950s, Wynwood had developed the name Little San Juan, nearly a decade before the Orange Bowl transformed into Little Havana. The demarcation would represent the first major Latin American community in Miami, and Wynwood would become the icon on which the Cuban district and Little Haiti would model themselves. Names shifted. Wynwood Park was renamed Roberto Clemente Park, and the schools were changed to reflect the new Puerto Rican culture that filled the halls. During the 60s and 70s, the area became famous for a clothing manufacturing district, building tall, windowless factories for high fashion brands. But by the 80s, much of the manufacturing industry had moved overseas for cheaper labor. At one point, there were over 225 retailers in the area, garnering over $64 million a year. But as the factories moved out, so did the jobs. That outflow of workers left empty homes and vacant businesses. Combined with a reputation for drug trafficking and high crime, by the end of the 80s, Little San Juan had become more known for its abandoned buildings than the thriving industry that built it. Then, in 1987, the old Flowers Bakery Warehouse was purchased. It reopened as a two-acre artist compound called the Bake House. Off 25th, 
Susie spots a courtyard with a four-story former manufacturing building entirely covered in paintings. The Wynwood Walls. We are lucky enough to have ignorantly stumbled upon them. It's dark, so massive streetlights illuminate what turns out to be an entire city block of the town, outdoors, with floor-to-ceiling murals on massive brick and cinder block. Ms. Vaughn's delicate and sensual pupes stretched the length of one building, masked figures, flowing furs and bare breasts with animal horns and vibrant colors of hair. Hailing from France, Ms. Vaughn is one of dozens of artists flown in from around the world to take a wall and fill it with something beautiful. The brainchild of real estate mogul Tony Goldman, the Wynwood Walls were a vision of preservation for the city's warehouse district, utilizing the windowless walls to showcase artists from around the world. Goldman is known for doing the same thing in Soho in New York and Philadelphia's 13th Street, preserving what is there and turning it into a showcase for artists. The Wynwood Walls began in 2009. In 2012, Goldman passed away, managing to get a mere glimpse of his dream for Miami. And to see it yourself is breathtaking. I almost choked up watching a family marvel at the works. Their child dwarfed, standing at the foot of a massive mural, his eyes glistening with wonder as his mother snaps a photo on her iPhone in the waning light. On the long wall at the entrance, Swoon's epic wheat paste collage of a woman feeding her child becomes more nuanced with each step closer to it. Within each character of this large-scale piece are smaller characters, windows into smaller scenes. I study the pensive side portrait of an older, bearded man. Inside of him are scrawlings and sketches of his younger self, helping a friend, sitting posed with a family. Strange creatures peer out from the cracks, and smiling faces peek from the corners with curiosity. Dahl East, a Chinese-based artist in South Africa, contributes a piece covering a large garage door in a yellow backdrop with two wolf-like creatures. They unravel before your eyes, settling into what looks like spindles of metal and shrapnel uncoiling towards each other. Nearby, Dolly's wife, South Africa's Faith 47, leaves her mark with an equally beautiful and harrowing portrait of a tiger in hunt. Meticulously hand-painted shadows reveal the creature with its head bowed, mouth pursed, and eyes keenly focused ahead. Long drips of paint trail all the way to the floor in sharp contrasts of the gray scale, and in the dim, spot-focused light it appears to be stalking through the rain upon its prey. At one end of the block sits Wynwood Kitchen and Bar, where one can rest in the patio. The art is equally opulent inside. With a floor-to-ceiling shepherd fairy mural behind the bar, a red and black elephant, his famous dove, and a pattern of his Obey posters. Let's just eat here, Susie suggests, and I agree. It wasn't on our master list, but so far she's been a far better predictor of enticing entertainment than I have. Opened in 2010, Wynwood Kitchen and Bar cranks out a Latin-inspired tapas to a sprawling dining room and even more massive patio full of hungry art seekers. Chef Miguel Aguilar, not to be confused with the Brooklyn chef of the same name, the guy featured on the series Chopped, he moved to Wynwood Kitchen and Bar from Philadelphia, where he'd cooked for Doug Rodriguez at Alma de Cuba before helping to open Steven Starr's El Rey. The menu is large and sprawling, and I leave the ordering to Susie as I'm feeling a little more low-key than usual. 
This proves to be a wise decision. She starts us off with Ropa Vieja empanadas, three crispy flour tortillas stuffed with marinated chicken and dipped into a cilantro crema. Next comes the caldo gallego, a traditional Galician soup of white beans, chorizo, collard greens, parsley, and tomatoes served in a rich stock. It's deep and flavorful, and the collards and white beans play really well together. Following are pan-seared scallops with those same delicious crispy triangular polenta cakes that we saw during breakfast at Versailles. And lastly arrives the seared duck breast with carrots, peanuts, cilantro, and a citrus-infused soy sauce. We see a lot of repetitive themes throughout the menus in Miami, all of them brimming with Latin and Spanish impact. Hints of familiar seasoning that somehow transcend their influence. Yes, these dishes may have landed here from ancient Spain, the Cuban Revolution, and Haitian or Puerto Rican tradition, but those same influences, like the chefs who created them, are in a very different place now. They're in a thriving metropolis of five million people. There is a distinct implication that although these dishes and the people that make them may be from somewhere else, they're all very much at home here in Miami. It is important to point out that, according to the New Tropic, after Goldman's investments, the area blossomed practically overnight, with rents tripling to $60 per square foot in less than three years. This made it nearly impossible for most of the artists to afford gallery or studio space in the very neighborhood they helped to build. So where do struggling artists go when their home turf pushes them out? In 2013, Camila Alvarez and Natalie Edgar released Right to Winwood. This beautifully produced short documentary began as a student project about the gentrification of the neighborhood over a very short decade. It is a pointed blade aimed at the developers in the area. A particularly startling set of interviews framed David Lombardi, one of Miami's most prolific developers, at his office, perched at his desk in front of a mural of a cigarette boat hurtling through blue waters. I like to say I took chicken shit and made chicken salad, says David Lombardi on camera. I had a building on 29th Street. There were drug dealers, there were prostitutes. I bought it because it was, a, it was part of an assemblage of what I needed to buy. I decided I'm going to tear this building down. It's cheaper to have it as a, a lot than it was to continue the way I was going. I walked in the building one day and told the tenants, I'm tearing this building down, and you're all going to have to get out. And they said, fuck you, you're not tearing the building down. You're full of shit. They're all stuck. And the next day, I delivered a backhoe in front of the building. That's a big machine that rips a building out. So I parked it there as an omen for them. And within a week, I had the permit. And the morning I got the permit, Chrissy had the neighborhood policeman come, knock on every door, and told them they have one hour to get out because the building was being condemned and torn down. And they all stood on the sidewalk with their belongings and their suitcases, looking like, he did it. <laughs> and I went by, and of course I gloated, and wished them all well on their future endeavors. David laughs to the camera. Three years later, the lot still stands empty. A large fence surrounds the trash-laden property. After Right to Winwood was released, David was furious. 
I really try not to let the criticism affect me, Lombardi told WLRN. The people who have been long-term residents here who chose to move on, whether it was because they got a large amount of money for their long-time family house, that's their decision to do so. If others got forced out of rentals because the developer bought it and tore down the building, when he buys the building, he can do as he wishes. So, you know, I think it's just the course of doing business. There's nothing new to it. This has become my life's work, this neighborhood of Wynwood. So, you know, when a film like the one you mentioned came out, it was like a personal attack on me. It's insulting, he said. Gentrification is a normal thing, but gentrification in Wynwood was developer-led rather than being artist-led, Alvarez told me. She said, It was more aggressive and faster because developers brought a business plan and used art and artists as a marketing tool. Artists didn't really live there before the developers conquered the area. Only a few art-related places were there, like the Bakehouse Art Complex and a few galleries owned by wealthy people, but the gentrification was not an organic process. When Goldman began his process, he noticed that small pocket of artist collectives and decided to capitalize on it, commissioning artists from outside the city and establishing the Wynwood Arts District Association to transform the neighborhood into an intentionally developed arts center rather than the slowly evolved districts of Chelsea or LA. As rents continue to rise, it becomes more and more impossible for artists to open studios or generations of families to stay in their rented homes. It shouldn't be surprising that the tagline for Wynwood Walls is, Here comes the neighborhood. As though there wasn't a nearly hundred-year-old neighborhood there before Shepard Ferry first wet his rollers for the first wheat paste. Marcus Feldman, an urban sociologist at FIU, told Alvarez and Edgar, Goldman is a professional neighborhood gentrifier. He makes an art of knowing how to buy in bulk properties in neighborhoods that have all the potential to become the latest hip cultural zone of the city. He did it in New York and Philadelphia. He was involved in South Beach. If the artists get priced out in places where the gentrification is actually artist-led, with like artist cooperatives and artists own property and all that kind of stuff, imagine what happens when it's not artist-led. The Miami Herald recently announced a ridiculous new planned development on the main drag of the district. The massive 9 million square foot proposal looks more like an outdoor shopping mall or the set of the Capitol in the Hunger Games than a viable cityscape and is a stark contrast from the gritty urban edge that makes Wynwood iconic. At the border between Little Haiti and Wynwood, you'll find the Design District, where massive ads for designer labels reach up to the heights of the towers of fashion, art galleries, and high-end apartments. Here, restaurants like Michael's Genuine are catering to a newer, more polished north end of Miami. Opened in 2007 by James Beard-winning Michael Schwartz, Michael's Genuine boasts a wood-fired oven and an array of small plate offerings from a mostly Italian-inspired menu. Ingredients are staunchly and aggressively farm-to-table and seem to come mostly from regional growers. The luxurious 110-seat dining room is matched by an equally sprawling patio tucked in the alleyway between a designer store and an art gallery. 
But stuffed to the gills as we are, we settle for a carafe of wine and a seat at the bar to people watch and listen to the crack of oyster shells as the shucker prepares his raw bar. It's pretty here. It's glossy. Outside, there's an installation by Paula Crown called Transposition over many miles, where large, glowing fabrics pop up from the concrete like icebergs. In the midst of it all, it could be easy to forget that this is the second step of gentrification, the slow creep of the windward allure into the corners of little Haiti. I'm sure there are those who are a little less than enthused watching the slow, ivy-like creep of the arts district into their backyards. But there is almost a built-in resistance for little Haiti. It's very different than Wynwood, Alvarez told me. Wynwood didn't really have this solid community like Little Haiti or Little Havana do. It used to be a Puerto Rican neighborhood back in the day, but then it became more mixed and fragmented. This lack of identity was one of the causes of why they were never politically active or organized, and why they never fought gentrification. When the developers called meetings to change the zoning or anything similar, nobody would show up because nobody knew. They were not active. So it was a lot easier for developers to fabricate their commercial playground, she says. That sandbag seems to be holding the waters at bay for now, but it's only a matter of time before they start to rise again. And that can be concerning for the Haitian community, particularly folks like Serge Toussaint, a man regarded by those long-term residents of Little Haiti as the artist in the community. With hundreds of iconic murals in the neighborhood, Toussaint has been covering the walls in colorful art since 1994, and has been a vital force in developing the truly otherworldly feel of the neighborhood. What began as a favor to his uncle, painting a sign in mural form, became a full-time job for the Haitian native when he was asked by neighbors to develop signage for their stores. Though he may be most famous for his mural of the Miami Heat, his depictions of the Haitian heroes on 54th Street, a hand-painted map of Little Haiti in Little Haiti Park, and the unmistakable Paimon Book Bakery signage are just a handful of the hundreds of works he's crafted over the years, part advertisement, part work of art, always depicting the story of the shop or restaurant, its owners, and their heritage. Winwood artists creeping into Little Haiti should respect the neighborhood's artistic identity, I don't have any problem with all the artists, Toussaint told WLRN, standing in front of his two-story masterpiece of the founding revolutionaries of Haiti's independence. But if you come into my community, you have to mingle your artwork with something that's related to Haitians. Alvarez explained, a lot of good artists started moving to Little Haiti when they realized the scheme behind Wynwood. Many others were priced out and ended up over there as well. I think that it is a more organic migration. Artists are the first wave of gentrification. They move to places for cheap rent, for big, cheap spaces where they can work. And Little Haiti is a good place for that, since it's still close to the downtown Midtown area. But it's considerably cheaper. There's an abundance of color in Miami. No matter what neighborhood you find yourself wandering through, you are sure to be engulfed in endless seas of red, white, and blue. Flags, streamers, the graffiti of buildings, all of it displaying some strange homogeneity. 
In fact, from the window of a passing car, it becomes hard to tell whether the colors are there to represent the United States, Haiti, or Cuba, but I believe that in reality, they are there to represent all three. In a city of so much endless diversity, where foods, cocktails, languages, clothes, and skin colors seem to rub off on one another at the faintest of crossings, it is also apparent that those integrations are often less willful than they are necessary. No matter how old or strong your sense of place may be in a neighborhood, if someone else with more money takes an interest, how much longer will it be your neighborhood? That was John with the third chapter from his Miami story right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Stick around for the final chapter. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer.
The server is looking at me with disdain. I'll definitely start with a mojito. Can you believe I've been in Miami all this time and have not had a mojito? I usually never drink them, but what the hell, one in Rome, right? And you know what? What, what? what did you want, Susie? You wanted a glass of red, right? And and can can I get a Campari and soda? I forget you can order multiple drinks at a time in Florida. <laughs> it's not like those control states in the Bible Belt. And, 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 and I'm sure we'll order a lot more when you get back with those cocktails. Thank you! Back at Versailles, and I'm talking Mach 5. As though my mouth has broken the speed barrier and is moving faster than the speed of my brain. Surely I am slurring. I'm not used to this strange and magical combination of uppers and depressants. Too many little cups of those velvety black caffeine bombs mixed with too many rums, tequilas, and gins. Too many rounds at max again. Those heavy hands really sneak up on you before stumbling across the street for an overpriced cafecito. It is with great urgency that I must warn you about the price discrepancy in Cuban coffee. In Little Havana, you will never pay more than 75 cents for a mini mug full of espresso. But as soon as you cross the bridge over that gorgeous blue water with gantry cranes towering as high as the skyscrapers, after you wade through the traffic, wrestle for overpriced parking, and finally find your way to a Cuban-owned bodega with an espresso machine, you pay upwards of $2 for a tiny plastic thimble full of sugar and coffee. But then again, everything in South Beach seems like some sort of racket. By the time the drinks arrive, I'm still roaring. You know what you want? I still, I still can't decide. You go, you go ahead. I'll just have a tamale. Suddenly I'm not that hungry, Susie whispers. She's as ripped as I am by now and harboring it in a very different way. While I'm leaning over and interrupting the dinner of strangers, drawing the ire of every server in the room, she is shyly and quietly huddled in her chair, almost disappearing into it. She's staring into her glass of wine. I feel bad because she was so excited about the mahi-mahi, the snapper, the shrimp, and I feel I may have pushed her a little over the edge, starting us out with those pre-beach, pre-lunch shots and beers at max. That's all you want? Okay, you're, you're welcome to have some of mine because I'm pretty sure I'm going to order everything I can't make my mind up between. The server begins brushing his thick black mustache with a pen and looking at me over the rim of his glasses with a tattered veneer of tolerance. I continue. Can I get a side of fufu? And let's, let's get this Criollo sampler to start with and maybe some of this white bean soup. And let's try that, that imperial rice. I've always heard about imperial rice and never had it. Oh, and, 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 and how's this Andalusian pig's feet? Do you think that would be too much? He slowly shakes his head to indicate that I've made some kind of error. And it occurs to me that he might just be sizing up our table and realizing that I've already ordered more than it can possibly fit in this small two-seater. This has been a habit of mine. At Shela Bebe, I ordered enough to feed us for the entire trip. Thank God they put us back here in the far, far corner of a sprawling restaurant. Okay, okay, I don't need the pig's feet. Let's just, let's just stick with everything else. He reads the order back to me slowly, the way a judge might read a list of charges. I'm not paying for all that, Susie says defensively. 
By now, her arms are crossed, and she looks mad. We leave tomorrow. What the hell are we going to do with all of that food? You got the last meal. I am paying for this one. We can leave it with our hosts, I suggest, knowing that I'm losing the battle. They're vegan, she says. Look, I say, using my most conciliatory and diplomatic tone, but I'm afraid that like most times I open my mouth, when I'm not getting my way, it will sound condescending. And it does. I've never had the chance to try any of these dishes, and while I wish we had a table full of our friends to split all this with, we don't. So I'm just gonna order it all and hope for the best. She glares at me. That'll be all, thank you, I say to the waiter with a massive fake smile. Incredulous, he evaporates into the fray. It's been a really, really, really long day. I've always prided myself on being able to sleep through anything, and almost anywhere, but roosters sound really angry in the morning, and turkeys sound like something out of a horror movie when their rasp wakes you from a deep REM cycle. So I have been wide awake since 6 a.m., and for the majority of the trip, I've averaged about four hours of sleep. I'm pretty sure Susie could sleep through a car bomb in the driveway. We began the day with a foray into Miami Beach, perhaps the last place in Miami I really wanted to see. When I think Miami Beach, all I can picture is a blinking neon sign boasting the city of midlife crisis. Yellow Ferrari convertibles, guys walking around in $100 t-shirts, girls in six-inch heels and fake breasts, hair gel, shitloads of hair gel. In other words, not my kind of scene. The settlement of the island began in the late 1800s as a massive avocado farm, with canals dug to help transport the harvest. Ironically, when John C. Collins' crop venture failed, he became a developer instead of a farmer. By the 19-teens, Collins began a behemoth project, the construction of the Collins Bridge, an insane two-and-a-half-mile wooden bridge that would cross the Biscayne Bay, the largest of its day. But when Collins ran out of money, his fellow developer, Carl Fisher, stepped in and funded the completion of the project. The bridge was later replaced by what is now the Venetian Causeway, a strange series of bridges that passed through a picturesque, man-made residential islands. Carl Fisher himself had been building like mad on the island, erecting hotels such as the Flamingo to attract wealthier winter vacationers fleeing the chilly winds of New York City. And who in their right minds in 1925 wouldn't want to travel to an exotic island to see one of America's first speedboat regattas? Or be served cocktails at your fancy hotels by curvy, bathing-suit-clad, roller-skating waitresses? But who could have predicted the devastating hurricane that would wipe entire swaths of the island clean of any standing buildings, killing more than 300 and doing more than 100 billion modern-day dollars worth of damage? Neatly timed, too, though, with just enough space before the Great Depression to rebuild the islands as the major metropolis of lore. By the 1930s, the hotels had been scaled back to smaller spaces to accommodate the lesser influx of tourists due to the financial crisis. Architects like Henry Hohauser and Murray Dixon left their marks on the island with simple, elegant, and progressive art deco structures that looked unlike any other place in the country. 
On our way to the beach, we stopped for lunch at a spot our friend had given me a tip about. Bella Cuba is a tourist-minded sampling of Cuban cuisine. Surprisingly moderately priced considering its location, the food was... meh. Nothing popped. Nothing sang. Still craving a real Cuban sandwich since I'd landed in Miami, I was really looking forward to it. Perhaps all that expectation left me feeling deflated when I finally sat down to a thin, slightly stale, and mostly flavorless offering. Susie went with the tamale and a side of yuca fries. She totally out-ordered me, and by now I was starting to think that she might be a little better at this travel-eating thing than me. Even stranger was the beer. Hatway was a Cuban-style beer, that's in quotation marks, as it's said on the label, where it also tells you that it is made in Greenville, South Carolina. It is manufactured by Bacardi, and for some reason has sulfites added, which seems a tad unnecessary for a pale ale. After lunch, it was time for a stroll through the Miami Beach Botanical Gardens, designed by the aptly named Raymond Jungles. Susie is a plant person. Her entire house is surrounded by massive, exotic plants that seem to be bursting with life. I am not a plant person. My best friend still gives me shit for killing the Christmas cactus she bought me for my birthday in under a year. I admittedly know little to nothing about plants, particularly ones that I cannot eat. You can't help but marvel at what you see in a botanical garden in a tropical climate. Massive blooms from alien-looking flowers that stick out like tongues from sharp leaves. Sweeping contrasts of outlandish colors, dark greens and neon pinks and yellows and deep blues and purples. Foreign palm trees with armor-like bark and long tails that sway in the breeze. Towering ficus trees that drape Spanish moss the way a woman might a long scarf and strange figs that bear fruit from their trunk rather than the branches. We stopped to feed the fish before finally heading back to Max Club Deuce for a pre-beach round of cocktails and to get our poker chips for a free round when we were done roasting under the hot Miami sun. But by the time we got to the beach, it was chilly and breezy, and we just decided to go back to the bar. Max was different the second time around. Earlier it had been deserted and silent, with not much of an early afternoon crowd, only the buzzing of neon. But her second time in, it was dusted with regulars. Older gentlemen in pearl-button shirts and dress pants, the sweeping strings of Cacheo's Rhapsody in Blue washed through the speakers of the jukebox, giving the scene a throwback, an almost Tarantino-esque vibe. Because of the camel-hump-shaped bar, guests are forced to face each other and thus converse. It's a quaint place. It's a friendly place. It's a happy place. After Max, we went to find caffeine. On the street, a man stopped to bum a cigarette from Susie, where she was sitting on the stoop smoking. And I could tell from the first words out of his mouth that he was exactly what I dreaded running into. The post-midlife crisis douchebag. The kind you might imagine has left a family at some point, in a flaming red Porsche. His bald head glistening in the sunshine as he drives off with some girl half his age, only to max out his credit cards and wind up relegated to rooming with a friend at 49. In debt up to his eyeballs and still dressing like he's 23, an Italian in a flat-billed cap and cargo shorts. 
Yeah, I'm in the entertainment business, he told us. I take people to clubs and show them a good time and they pay me for it. I have no way of verifying if this is true, but I cannot imagine anyone paying good money to hang out with this emaciated, mop-headed Jersey boy. But then again, it is Miami. If you do find yourself in Miami Beach in search of something other than dance clubs slinging high-priced bottle service, if you want to avoid Kardashian-like drivel while still absorbing the culture and the spirit of the neighborhood, or if you simply forgot your 8-inch hooker heels, look no further than the broken shaker. Pass through the beautifully antiquated lobby of the once opulent Indian Creek Hotel, now the hipster hotel, freehand. Head towards the pool and bare left. There, behind the wide rollaway doors, is a cocktail lover's haven. What began as a pop-up bar earned its permanent location in 2012, and what resulted was something that even the James Beard Awards recognized as a bar not to miss. Ilad Zvi and Gabriel Orta opened the Broken Shaker in the hopes of creating something approachable in Miami Beach. A step up from the dinge of the dive bars we'd been enjoying, but something not nearly as gaudy and atrocious as the high-end club scene that had become commonplace on the island. As V told Miami.com, quote, Handcrafted cocktails are not as accessible as they should be. It's almost impossible to find a good drink for $11 on Miami Beach. Miami, much like Vegas, is insane. It is the kind of place where 30-somethings willingly hand their credit cards to women in short black skirts to enter glossy clubs, pay $50 to get in the door, to hear a DJ whose name they won't even recall in the morning. Then they spend an average of $350 for a bottle of Grey Goose vodka, the most boring liquor in the world, which would cost them around $30 in a liquor store. Did I mention that an automatic gratuity of 20% is also added for that bottle service? I have yet to see how being fucked in the wallet by a business that tells you explicitly that it is their expressed goal is fun, but then again, I also didn't do three lines of cocaine before heading out for a night on the town either. I'm here to relax, not burn calories. As the sun set on the enclosed courtyard, we took our cocktails and reclined on the lounge chairs by the pool but still overlooking the garden that takes up the western part of the courtyard. Candles and tiki torches were set alight, and there was a shift in the crowd. In the cool of the evening, sport coats appeared on shoulders. Sundresses gave way to longer, flowing fabrics. In my glass, Monroe's garden. It's a blend of Olmeca Altos tequila, Aperol, radish, celery, fennel, cumin, and citrus. For so many flavors, it was surprisingly refreshing and delicate. Susie opted for the lampshades on fire. Bombay gin, which she swapped out for St. George, via dry vermouth, garden brine, sherry, apricot, and bitters. They also have a pretty detailed ice program that pairs a variety of shaped ice for specific drinks. And there was a punch bowl on the bar where the server doles out a daily concoction. In the courtyard, a woman was running a small pop-up jewelry shop out of an old vintage tricycle truck selling elegant gold and silver pieces by Mianzai. Susie was drawn to them like a barracuda. Shiny metals are a key temptation for her. Let's stay here for a while. I want to get another drink, Susie said, bounding back to the bar. 
We were eating the place up, and the staff was friendly, as was most everyone we met in Miami. The drinks were good, and the poolside vibe was quite right. We made our way through the list. Letter to Hermione is pisco shaken with mezcal, cinnamon, strawberry, and horchata. Puncher's Chance combined rum, date-infused cronin, matcha tea, maple syrup, lemon, and lime. And the particularly tasty Eurotrash Kuiperania was a nice play on the classic Brazilian cocktail with cachaça, zuca amaro, pomegranate, vinegar, sugar, and lime. By a wee 8 o'clock in the evening, we were slurring our words, and it became increasingly clear that we were going to need to get some food before things started heading downhill quickly. We were too indecisive in our inebriated state to make accurate evaluations of the remaining restaurants on our list to figure out where we would have our last dinner in the city. But almost simultaneously, we looked at each other and said, Let's go back to Versailles. There's really nowhere else I'd rather be. Back to Versailles. We have been, understandably, concealed by the astute hostess in the back nether reaches of the sprawling restaurant, which is saying something. The dining room alone, not including the massive bakery or the coffee shop, has over 370 seats. And on a busy night like tonight, every one of them seems to be filled. Which is unfortunate for the poor waiter, who is now trying to unload the massive tray full of food that I have ordered onto our small two-top table. Susie's already large eyes are now as wide as an owl's. Jesus, she mumbles. I take it as a blessing and dig in. Rumor has it that Versailles was originally opened as a French bakery. It was then purchased in 1971 by Felipe A. Valls. As the Miami Herald's Fabiola Santiago penned in 2011, this is a neighborhood restaurant founded to feed and assuage the nostalgia of a people by one of their own, Felipe Valls Sr., a Santiago de Cuba entrepreneur who fled to Miami in 1960 to wait it out to the end of the newly installed Castro government. Val's joke to the Herald, People tell me Fidel made you a millionaire in Miami, and I tell them I would have been one in Cuba too. When it opened, it was just a small sandwich shop, but Val's family-run restaurant empire has grown to employ over 2,400 people in the Miami-Dade area. Over the years, Versailles has become a key point in political organizing for Cubans enduring El Exilio in Miami. It has been a popular place to spot prominent politicians like Miami Mayor Thomas Reglado or U.S. Representative Ileana Rosalettinen, Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, and even Senator Marco Rubio. As blogger Glenn Lindgren put it, let's just say the sight of a limousine or two or a couple of suburbans loaded with Secret Service agents hardly raises an eyebrow here. And much of Miami, like any hotbed for political influence, it has not come without controversy or corruption. In 2014, Vols Sr., described by his doctors at the Baptist Health Medical Group as morbidly obese, was sued after an extremely drawn-out love affair with a former waitress for his alleged subsequent harassment of his scorned ex-lover. 
stories of a private office in the restaurant that contained a bed and bathroom and was littered with sex toys and sex paraphernalia spilled out of the trial, as well as a second lawsuit from two former waiters for discrimination of sexual orientation. But there are some places where the controversy only seems to breed more intrigue. You start to look at the curtained dining rooms and wonder, who's dining back there? You're curious as to where the hidden sex room is, and just what stories these waiters might tell you if they weren't on the clock. When the platter arrives to the table, it's overwhelming. Piles of yellow rice, black beans in their own thick, inky black juices, that taste of cumin, thyme, and patience. There's ropa vieja, shredded stewed beef and tomato sauce, garlic and spices for hours until devastatingly tender. There's also massive fried chunks of crispy pork, a Cuban tamale, which differs in that the Cuban varietal has meat mixed into the dough instead of stuffed as filling, and the fried plantains. The croquettes, crunchy, gooey little torpedoes of flavor, are so rich it's almost impossible to finish one, and the boiled cassava with mojo, a tangy sauce of bitter orange, olive, and garlic are almost overkill. Fufu is a beast unto itself. Think of it as a dish in the way that you might think of mashed potatoes in southern cooking, as it serves the same purpose on a plate. Originating as a West African dish, it is typically made of either yucca or plantains that are continuously pulverized and blended with butter until it forms a doughy texture. You pull it apart like dough, and it is often used as the utensil with which to eat the meat, the way one eats Ethiopian cuisine with injera bread. And then there is the imperial rice. Chicken is boiled with veggies to create its own stock, in which the rice is cooked with a generous paprika-centered seasoning. Meanwhile, olives, peppers, pimentos, and peas are simmered in a tomato sauce with sherry separately, with the chicken neatly shredded. Rice is cooked in the stock, and then layered into a pan where the rest of the ingredients are layered interchangeably with more rice and several types of cheese before being baked briefly. It is then served in a decorative dome shape and topped with mayonnaise. It is rich and flavorful with grains of rice strung together with gooey cheese. It is wonderful. As a whole, the meal is completely unnecessary. Behemoth, decadent, and more than any family of four could eat, let alone the two of us. Those around us look on with shame in their eyes at the greedy white kids with eyes bigger than their stomachs, but I do not care, for here, surrounded by a dozen dishes I had only once hoped to taste, I could not be happier. Wave after wave sweeps the beige sands of Miami's shores until they are smooth and packed. Nation after nation Family after family, tourists, immigrants, entrepreneurs, investors, jet-setters, punks, queers, runaways, dreamers, all wash up on the same shore, building a city higher and higher, in high-rises that reach like Jacob's Ladder to a dense, blue, and cloudless sky. A land of seemingly limitless potential for those who can afford it. A city that practically blossomed overnight, 
and has become one of America's most vibrant hotbeds of culture and integration. It is impossible to say that this is not, perhaps, the new cultural icon of the South. And while certainly not the face of the Old South, it is becoming increasingly obvious that Miami is a predominant harbinger of a bold new South. By the time the last vestiges of the Old South were dying out, around the time of desegregation, Miami was fighting a losing battle in its fairly flagrant war to maintain a sense of white cultural superiority. Though Brown versus Board of Education may have occurred in 1954, many neighborhood lines were still drawn around the old red line districts. And as Latin American immigrants kept building neighborhoods of their own, it generated a very different city than the South had been used to. As Joan Didion explains in her fantastic look at Cuban-American history, 1987's Miami, quote, Desegregation had not just come hard and late to South Florida, but it had also coincided, as it had not in other parts of the South, with another disruption of the local status quo, the major Cuban influx, which meant that the jobs and services which might have helped awaken an inchoate black community went instead to Cuban, who tended to be overtrained but willing. Havana bankers took jobs as inventory clerks at $45 a week. Havana newspaper publishers drove taxis. That these were the men in black tie who now danced with the women in the Chanel and Valentino evening dresses on the ballroom level of the Omni was an irony lost in its precise detail, although not in its broad outline, on the sons of the men who did not get the jobs as inventory clerks or taxi drivers, the children downstairs in high-top sneakers, fanning in packs through the dim avenues of the locked-up mall, end quote. Which begs an honest question, and one to which I don't think anyone who has spent meaningful time in Miami has an easy answer. Just who does Miami belong to? And did it ever really belong to anyone? To many of those grabbing their early cafecitos at Versailles on a Wednesday morning, it belongs to those rejected by the Castro regime, or those who abandoned it. To any of those shuffling down Northeast 54th Street with a styrofoam box packed to the point of popping with Creole, it belongs to any Haitian refugee fleeing a distraught homeland. And to anyone puffing a cigarette at the end of Mac's padded bar, it belongs to veterans who settled there at the end of the Second Great War. But one thing you will hear most all of them say is that Miami is distinctly American. There is a lot of talk around these parts of making America great again and taking our country back. But taking it back from whom exactly? These families... The families that built these homes, filled these streets, schools, bars, and restaurants? What exactly does that mean in a place like Miami, whose entire growth and prominence stems directly from an integration and melding of some very diverse and independent cultures? You see it and taste it everywhere— Puerto Rican fufu being served on Cuban menus, Spanish soups of collards in Puerto Rican neighborhoods, tamales slung in soul food shops. Half the time, you are as likely to see a hamburger on a menu as you are a Cuban sandwich. In 1782, 
J. Hector Saint-Jean de Crevecue penned his Letters from an American Farmer, a description of a new American culture. Quote, Here individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men, whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. End quote. This new melting pot touted and bragged about by those early American writers, it's still happening. Only, instead of it being a diversity of Caucasians immigrating from Europe, it's a more varied assemblage, and instead of it existing only in cities like New York or Boston, it grows on other borders, places like here in Miami, where stars, stripes, reds, whites, and blues mean different things to five million Americans, new and old. Perhaps from those different meanings, the rest of us could learn more in this magic city. One thing for sure down here around Biscayne, despite the bubbling and boiling, the melting pot is tasting quite good these days. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by The Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. Founded in 1979, The Marketplace has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Katrin Doza, Kareen Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Pink Louds, Labahura, Recluso, Felicia Atkinson, Maku Sound System, Giles Peterson's Havana Cultura Band, Polem, Los Desteos, Shansa Via Cerquito, Pausa, Cachao, Kike Wolf, Bayroa, and Los Walters. Catherine Campbell is our editor at large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor in chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume, right here on 103.7 WPVM LP. Hey, it's John with just a quick note before we take off. I'm really proud of the music selection for this episode. It took months of digging through Latinx music blogs, playlists, and articles to drum up so many musicians from the regions touched by this story.
Truly, the music scenes in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Haiti are brimming with talent right now, but that research also led us to a slew of other artists from all over Latin America that we'd simply never heard of. If you'd like to know more, we've provided an extended Spotify playlist with all the songs that stood out to us on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. And while you're there, please consider subscribing through our Patreon. We pay out of pocket for this show, and your contributions help make it possible. So if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating just to help keep us on the air. Thanks.